you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are continuing our series on the topic of eschatology, the study of last things. Um, today we come to a portion of scripture that has been called the Little Apocalypse, which I think you'll see why it's referred to that. And today I'm looking at the, the sermon title of The Man of Lawlessness. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you how I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will, not, will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and then let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, <clears throat> and we ask, O oh God, that you would give us understanding this day, Lord, so that we could take hold of it and apply it in our lives by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the past few weeks, we've looked at well, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. We didn't go into Matthew 25, but we just looked at Matthew 24, and we saw there how Jesus responded to two questions by his disciples. They asked him, when would the, uh, the temple be destroyed, and what would be the sign of the end of the age? And we saw how Jesus used the destruction of the temple, which did in fact happen in 70 A.D., he used that as a paradigm in a, or a picture for what would happen at the end of the age. We remember for the Jewish people at that time, the temple and the end of the age were, were tied together. So for them, the destruction of the temple meant the end of the age. But Jesus, 
using the temple as a paradigm keeps those things distinct. One will happen, but that doesn't mean that thing, that means that's going to be the end of the age. And then the main sign for the destruction of the temple would be the appearance of one that is called the abomination of desolation, or that causes desolation, which was prophesied by Daniel 600 years before Jesus was born. And we saw two fulfillments already of that. The first fulfillment was in 163 B.C. by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who profaned the temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple. He profaned that temple, or that was the second temple he profaned. And then in 70 A.D., we see that the second fulfillment of that by the Romans, where the Romans came in and they desecrated that temple and they burned it down to the ground. And then I agree with those commentators who see a yet future fulfillment of a figure who will arise at the end of the age who will profane God's temple, not a physical rebuilt temple, but the church. And then Christ comes and gathers his elect from the four winds of the, of the world and creates a new heavens and a new earth. So that lays, that's a little bit where we've been so far. And then we come to Thessalonians now, 2 Thessalonians. So it's 2 Thessalonians, which means there was 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, we read about how there was confusion about the second coming of Christ. And Paul wants to write to, to help them with the confusion. And part of the confusion was, well, what about our brothers and sisters in Christ who died before Christ returns? Are they going to miss out on the resurrection? And so Paul wants to tell them, no, no, you're not going to miss out. They're, they're in heaven with Christ. They're going to return with Christ. And we who are here will be caught up together with them in the air. And then Christ is going to establish his, uh, consummate his kingdom and, and will be raised with glorified bodies. And so he corrects that misunderstanding in 1 Thessalonians. But now in 2 Thessalonians, another misunderstanding has arisen through false teachers who were saying that Christ has already returned. He's already come back. And where does that leave us if Christ has already come back? And so he assures them that, no, Christ has not returned yet and will not return until a couple things happen. First of all, there's going to be this rebellion and apostasy, and then the man of lawlessness, this final abomination that causes desolation will be revealed. So the main idea we're going to look at this morning is this, is that God's chosen people must stand firm in the truth as we await the return of Christ to destroy the man of lawlessness at the end of the age. Four points we're going to look at this morning. You get a bonus point for free. I know you're excited about that. So the first point is Christ will not return until after the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul jumps right out of the gate. This is a church that was suffering persecution. And so he assures them in the midst of that suffering that Christ will, in fact, return in glory to bring judgment upon unbelievers and in to glorify his people. And now in chapter 2, he's going to address some of the confusion here about the return of Christ. And he lets them know that Christ has not returned as some were saying. Some were saying through word. They're, they're standing up. They're prophesying. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord has returned, or whatever they're saying, whatever they're teaching. And then also even, it seems, circulating letters in Paul's name. 
That's how deceptive they were. That's what liars they were. And Paul's saying, no, that's not. But you can understand, he says, these things were, sh these were shaking you. These were alarming you. And you can imagine why that would be. And, of course, back in that day, we all realized they didn't have cell phones and the Internet. They couldn't just text Paul and say, hey, Paul, is this true? And, you know, this guy's coming in. Can you just send me a, a, a text real quick and we can? No, that, that's not how it was back then. So you can imagine the angst that this was creating in the body. Alarm, shaken. If Christ has returned, well, what about us? Uh, maybe Jerry Jenkins is right, the whole left behind thing. We've been left behind. <laughs> and in verse 3, he says, no, listen, let no one deceive you. Deceive, you know, lie. And I think there's the idea of seduce as well. Don't let anyone seduce you. And, of course, now with, we're going to see the emphasis on Satan throughout the passage. We know that Satan is the master deceiver. Going all the way back in the Genesis, we saw how he had God's word and he twisted God's word and he deceived Eve. And then Eve ate of the fruit. You shall be as gods. That sounds like a great idea. And she ate of the fruit. This fruit will be good for you. He, she believed the lie. She was deceived. But Adam wasn't deceived. Adam, with his thirst for, for autonomy, godlike autonomy, he wasn't deceived. He just ate. But Eve did because of the tempter. He was tempted, but he wasn't deceived, Adam. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to twist the truth. He wants to distort the truth. He'll even use the truth to do that. We saw it with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He takes God's word, but he, he twists it. He always... There's something off. And in here, he uses false teachers, not just here, but throughout all history, he uses false teachers to do that. And here, the false teachers, here's how, you know, here's how tricky it is. It seems as though the false teachers, they have the right Jesus. You know, it isn't that, well, they preach a different Jesus. It seems like they have the right Jesus. It seems like they were... Talking about Jesus, the Jesus that, you know, who is the Christ, who died on a cross for sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven. But they were saying that that Jesus, the one that we all know, the one that we say that that's the true Christ, has returned. And so they distort an essential element of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. We often don't think of the return of Christ as an essential element of the gospel. But dear friends, it is. Because we, we talk about the gospel, we talk about the gospel, how it's, it's about justification by faith alone. That's our entrance into the kingdom through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and His grace alone. And then we talked about how now we're being sanctified, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. That process will continue throughout our entire lives. But now we're looking forward to that day when we will be glorified. We will be raised bodily just like Jesus was. That's all a crucial and critical part of the gospel. And that was what was being denied here, that part, the glorification part. And so what we need to understand is that there can be differences over the details of the second coming. There can be differences over the details of the second coming. So, for example, 
we talk about different orthodox views of end times. Orthodox. These are views that believing Christians can hold and still be called Christian. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the premillennial view. We're talking about the amillennial view and postmillennial views. All those different views on the millennial reign of Christ, Christians can disagree over the details, and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to, to castigate or charge somebody with being a heretic because you're premillennial in your eschatology or amillennial or postmillennial. And here's what's interesting is when you look at those different views, we all agree. Here's the, here's the basics of what we agree on. Jesus will return. It'll be personal. It'll be visible. It'll be bodily. It's to be longed for. And the timing is unknown. We all believe that. Believers and unbelievers will be resurrected. Believers to everlasting life. Unbelievers to everlasting judgment. Creations of new heavens and new earth. That's the essential elements of the last times, the, of, the, of the return of Christ, that all of us have to believe and that we all do believe even though we're not exactly sure how everything is going to pan out in the details. And that's why some people say that they're pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> so, and as I've said, I take the amillennial approach, the, the now-millennial, that is Christ now has ascended into heaven. He's, he's ruling and he's reigning now. And the entire period of time from his, his ascension into heaven to his second coming is, is the millennial reign. Christ is reigning and ruling now, putting all of his enemies under his feet. As he goes forth now, he, he equips his church and empowers the church by his spirit to go and make disciples of the nations. But we all agree on these things. If you say, the heresy is, if you say Christ has returned, that's what the heresy is. That's what the heresy is. So it's very important for us to remember and to keep in mind. And so, Paul says, don't be deceived. Two things are going to happen before Christ returns. First of all, he says rebellion. Now, this word rebellion is apostasia. So, we're going to learn a Greek word today. Apostasia. What do you think that means? Apostasy, right? Apostasy. Well, that raises the question, what is Apostasy. Apostasy is where those who profess to be God's people turn away from the faith. Just to cut to the chase. They say, one say, I, I believe, and then you come to a place where you say, I don't believe that anymore. That's basically what apostasy is. And apostasy has occurred all through redemptive history. The classic example of apostasy, well, we could, there's many classic examples, but the one I had in mind here was Israel itself. Israel is, is delivered from its bondage and slavery to Egypt, and they're brought into the promised land. You shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You're supposed to worship the Lord and him alone. And they go into the promised land. God brings them. He sets them up. And then what does Israel do after some time? Well, we know about later on, as the kingdom is established and David is king, and after him, we see all how they turned away from the Lord. They started to worship other gods, and so God exiled them. He exiles them, in essence, for their apostasy. 
because they had turned away from the true faith. But even before that, we recall in Judges, when they're in the promised land, they're in Judges, and we read the refrain in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There is the essence of apostasy, and that is the, the condition of humanity ever since the fall. We apostatize from the Lord, who we were created to worship and glorify and enjoy forever. But here, Israel, in the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we often think of that as in terms of the irreligious. It did what was right in their own eyes. That's surely talking about the morally profane. They're just, you know, morally degenerates, so depraved. And there's, I, there is a sense where that's true, but there's also, I think, it refers to the religious as well. An example here that I thought of is the Pharisees. The Pharisees apostatized. Well, how can that be? Because they were like one of the most religious people in all of Israel during Jesus' time. They had the law. They memorized the law. I mean, memorized the whole law. <laughs> right? That's pretty impressive. But they did something else besides memorize the law. They added to it. They added their traditions, the traditions of men the things that seem right in their own eyes. Well, we don't want to break the law, so we're going to make these other laws. We're going to fence the law off, put a fence around it to make sure we don't break the law. But the fence here, that's really what you have to obey. That's the word. And Jesus says, no, that's not. And you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So what happens when you, with the traditions of men is we put it on equal par with God's word. That becomes God's word, what is right in our own eyes. Many examples of this. One example in our modern time is with the Roman Catholic Church, where tradition and the teaching magistrum of the church through the Pope is equal in authority to God's word. Rome has a very high view of scripture. But they put tradition and the teaching magistrum on equal par with the church. And the only way you can understand the word is through the tradition of the church and the, and the teaching magistrum of the church. So really, tradition and the teaching magistrum of the church are above scripture. And of course, Whatever the Pope says when he speaks ex cathedra or cathedra, however you want to pronounce it, when he speaks from the chair, well, that is binding. You must submit to that, to their tradition. It takes not only equal place with God's word, but nullifies God's word. And the false teachers here were doing the same thing. Their words were God's words. And, of course, this traces all the way back to the fall. You can do what you want to do. Do what's right in your own eyes. You are the final authority. We think about these Phar the Pharisees and other examples. This is the issue with all of humanity. This is the issue with us in our lives as Christians when we sin against the Lord. I have God's word, but I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. Or we see God's word, and it says this, but I don't like what it says here, and I'm just going to keep believing what I believe because I don't want to submit to God's word. 
and I'm going to twist it to make it say something that it doesn't really say. Many examples, you get the point. There will be, the point here is that there will be a large-scale apostasy, <clears throat> not in the world, but within the church, within the church, at the end of the age. There's always apostasy in the church. There's always people who say, who, we've so many examples, but this is going to be on a large scale. And connected to this apostasy is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now, there's a couple things we have to say <clears throat> about this man of lawlessness. First of all, the obvious is it's a man. And not just a man, it's the man. A single individual, the man of lawlessness. Some manuscripts say sin. I think lawlessness really gets at that really well because here that word lawless is used a number of times in the text and the idea of lawless has to do with total opposition to God's law. Here's what God says and you know that's what God says. You know it's God's word and you say, I don't care. I'm going to refuse that. I'm going to, here's what I think is the truth. And you set that up as the standard. And the man of lawlessness, that's what he is. He's, it's of lawlessness. It's in direct opposition to the very word of God and thus God himself, what God says. And then he's called the son of destruction or the son of perdition. If that sounds familiar, that's the same phrase that was assigned to Judas. Judas was the son of perdition. The man of lawlessness is a son of destruction, of utter ruin. And there's something here that's hellish about this one as a son of destruction. And so putting it all together, you think about this man of lawlessness, we put it all together. This is an individual who was described in other places as antichrist. There's coming a time when the gospel-preaching church will be deceived to such a degree in the world that there'll be a great apostasy, a turning away from the word in worship of Christ to the word in worship of Antichrist. And that takes us to the second point. Well, who in the world is the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist? Well, the term is found in a couple of places in 1 John and in 2 John, 1 John 2, 1 John 4. The word anti or anti in Greek is, it means in place of or in opposition to, against, however you want to say it. And the sense that we get here with this anti-Christ is there's an already and a not yet manifestation of antichrist the already manifestation of antichrist is one who denies that jesus is christ he's not the christ and it denies that he came in the flesh in john's day there was this uh, early movement of gnosticism which taught that physical matter is evil so Jesus, if he's God, he could not have assumed to himself a human nature because sin, that, that's sinful. 
But that's false. Matter isn't evil. It's our hearts that are evil. And so they deny that he came in the flesh. And that could be two ways. You could deny his full divinity. You could deny his full humanity. And as such, they deny the Father as well, John says. You deny the Father and the Son. Thus you deny the triune nature of God. God is, we serve one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Antichrist is anti-true God revealed in Christ. They preach a false Jesus and a, thus a false gospel. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Even if someone has the right Jesus but preaches a false gospel, that is a spirit of Antichrist. It's opposed to Christ and his work. And the text says many Christs have gone out into the world, and we would say, since the fall of man. Since the fall of man. When did this start? Genesis 3.15. I said, all the Bible is just a footnote to Genesis 3.15. <laughs> and it is. I will put enmity between you. He's talking to the devil. I put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The two seeds are at war with each other. The seed of the woman is Christ and those who are in union with him versus the seed of the serpent, those, the devil and those who are in union with him. All have fallen humanity apart from Christ. This is the spirit of Antichrist that is in the world already. Already in the world. Opposing Christ and opposing his seed, the church, until the end of the age. Now, there are many examples of this, the spirit of Antichrist that's been in the world since the fall and will continue all the way up to the end of the age. There's those who claim to be Christian but have a different Jesus. We think of the Mormons. The Mormons believe about God. Well, they believe that God was once a man who then became God. And that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Well, that's not the right Jesus. <laughs> uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a created being. So they deny the Trinity. They deny his full divinity. Oneness Pentecostals deny the triune nature of God. Now, there's a difference between Oneness Pentecostals and what, you would, what we would call Trinitarian Pentecostals, standard Pentecostals, like in the Assemblies of God. One is Pentecostals deny the triune nature of God. God has appeared in the one person that is God sometimes appears as Father, sometimes he appears as Son, sometimes he appears as Holy Spirit, but it's one person. The Trinity teaches, no, there's one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then there's those who have the right Jesus but the wrong gospel. This would be the Roman Catholic Church. I'm thankful for my time that I spent in the Roman Catholic Church as a kid. I heard about the triune nature of God. I heard about the right Jesus, fully God, fully man. Heard about all that stuff. But they have, sadly, a false gospel because they teach, yes, you're saved by grace. Yes, you're saved. It's, it's through faith in Jesus. But it's faith in Jesus plus 
your spirit-wrought works of righteousness plus the works of the saints plus, and there's lots of pluses you can't see, it keeps going further and further. No, we're saved through and by the perfect works of Jesus Christ alone and through faith in him. Christ, not us, is the ground of our salvation. And then there's the false religions and philosophies of the world, Islam. Islam has a belief about Jesus, but it's false. Hinduism, Judaism, secularism, agnosticism. There might be a God. I'm not sure if there's God. That's agnosticism. And atheism, there is no God. Postmodernism, all the isms you can think of. Then there's totalitarian governments. We're all familiar with those. We think of China, North Korea. They're totalitarian governments. They get rid of God, and in its place is what? Government. By the way, our country, it seems to me, is moving more and more in that direction. Just on a side note, that one's for free. Any person who denies who Jesus truly is or refuses to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior has, what's, what's going on there? It's an antichrist. It's, it's, an, it's a spirit that's opposed to Christ. So many examples. That's why we have to preach the gospel to people so that the gospel and the spirit of God can, can set them free from their opposition to Christ. So there's the all, already manifestation, but there's also a not yet manifestation of Antichrist to come. Now, there's been many candidates throughout history. Who is this Antichrist, the Antichrist? Uh, some in the early church, and even today, they say, well, it was Nero. Some say it's the Pope. The Reformers, for example, were very saying, said that, that he, the Pope is the Antichrist. We could say he is an Antichrist because of his false teaching about the gospel, but not the Antichrist. Some said Stalin, some said Hitler, some say Saddam Hussein. You know, people are playing what we say, pin the tail on the Antichrist. Who's, you know, looking at the newspaper, who's it going to be? Well, we, maybe it's this person, maybe it's that person. None of those things are. Many candidates in history. But there will be one who will arise who will be the epitome of all hellish opposition and ruin. And it is this one who is identified not just as an Antichrist, of which there have been many expressions, but the Antichrist, one so controlled by Satan that he's more or less, in many ways, an incarnation of Satan as Satan attempts to mock and mimic Jesus. He'll make, he'll make Hitler look like a choir boy. But he won't seem like a fanatic like Hitler. He'll seem so good. And what he's going to recommend for people is like, who could possibly be against that? He'll declare peace, peace. Many other things. There will be an individual, I believe, Yet to come. Ken Riddlebarger, Dr. Ken Riddlebarger, he says, quote, many antichrists will come and go, but the series of antichrists faced by the church from the beginning 
will at some point give way to an Antichrist, the final heretic, arch-blasphemer, and persecutor of God's people. So how will we know that the man of lawlessness has been revealed? Well, verse 4, we see the depth of his lawlessness. Going back to the beginning, Satan and his warfare with God and his seed. The essence of sin is ultimately to oppose God and to exalt ourselves as God. That's what we do. That's the essence of sin. And the Antichrist will be the most profound and intense manifestation of that. He will arise with and through, I believe, the power of the state. I think this comes out in Revelation 13, the beast. And he will insert himself in the temple of God, and he will proclaim himself to be God, and not only demand to be worshipped, but he will be worshipped as Christ. And that raises the question, what is the temple of God? Well, some people say it's a rebuilt temple at the last days, but I don't think that that's what's going on here. For a number of reasons, first of all, Christ now is the true temple. He's the true fulfillment of the temple. Everything that the temple represented was fulfilled in Christ. Now that that physical temple is done away with, so are all sacrifices. Because Christ is the one true sacrifice. That's it. But not only was Christ a true temple, but all those who are in union with Christ now are called the temple of God, his body, the temple of God, that he is building one spiritual stone at a time. So we see the passage here. That there's others we can look at. First, or 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Who's the temple of God? We are the temple of the living God. So what agreement do we have with idols, brothers and sisters? as the temple of God. Ephesians 2, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is, the word of God that was breathed out through them is the foundation, not them themselves, they themselves. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure grows into what? A holy temple of the Lord. Peter you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a temple. So that's the temple. Taking the seat in the temple means he will infiltrate the gospel-preaching church throughout the world. Many will be deceived from within it and begin to believe a false gospel and even worship the Antichrist. And that raises the question, how is that possible Because I thought that if you're a true believer, that can't happen to you. But you see, the church isn't just comprised of true believers. It isn't just comprised of sheep. It's also comprised, sadly, of goats, the wheat and the tares. The epistles, almost every epistle warns about this. It warns about false teachers within the church. So Paul says, don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He speaks how some, with their, with their itching ears, you know, they gather these teachers around so they, they hear what they want to hear. And this happened all down through church history, and it's no different today. No different today. You know, it's inconceivable 
how just a few years ago, so many gospel-preaching churches fell prey to the LGBTQ dogma. How in the world did that happen? Well, the spirit of lawlessness is still here. And the culture now has, has flooded into the church, and the church now is more impacted by the culture than it is by Christ. And we're listening to the word of the culture, not the word of Christ. Our minds are being conformed and transformed by the word of the culture and not Christ. And so the world says, this is what's true. This is what you ought to believe. If you don't believe that, we're going to persecute you. You're going to be called a hater. And we say, okay, well, then that must be true. And God's word says, no, that's not true. How is it that so many sections in the church are embracing the racist theory of critical race theory? that sizes people up on the basis of the color of their skin and categorizes them on the basis of the color of their skin and say, if you're a certain color, then you are by default an oppressor or an op oppressed one. How do we ever go come to that point? And we bring that, those toxic things into the church, and it has a direct bearing on the gospel. In the culture... Who would have dreamed that we would say that there's more than two genders? And that kids should have sex reassignment surgery. That there would be trans story hour for kids. How is that possible? Because verse 7, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. It's already at work. And the reality is we're either going to have God's law or our law which is lawless. It is not merely contrary to God's law, but it is opposed to God himself. And at the core, it is satanic. It is satanic. This is why Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities. Where do all these things come from? Who's inspiring these things? the master of lies. That means we don't wage war in our flesh. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, prayer, and God's word, and the gospel. And as bad as it is now, it's going to be even worse at the end of the age. As we see that God is restraining the lawless one until the time of his choosing. Well, who is this restrainer? Well, there's been much speculation about that as well. Some say it's the Archangel Michael, based on Daniel's prophecies, and I, that is very intriguing. The bottom line is, is that we really don't know. What we know is this, is that God in his providence restrains the forces of evil, and he will remove that, straight, that restraint at some point at the end of the age that we don't know. When he does, there's going to be a powerful deception, because it'll be accompanied by false signs and wonders. Satan loves to mimic Christ, and it's a cheap trick. It's a cheap imitation. False signs and wonders, but people will be like, wow, that's impressive. That must be true, and they'll be flocking after those things. Believers are constantly called to test the spirits. Many in the church today, I, I hear them in some circles talk about you know, Jesus said, greater works than these, you'll do as well. 
Meaning you're going to perform a whole bunch of miracles, just like even greater miracles than Jesus did. And so if you do those things, that's a, that's a pure uh, proof that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. The greater works isn't that you're going to run around performing miracles. The greater works is that now he's mobilizing the church to go forth and do what? Preach the gospel. Preach the, the powerful gospel where the Spirit's going to reach in to hearts of stone and take them out and put in hearts of flesh and raise up a spiritual army. The valley of dead bones will be made alive by the Spirit of God. That's what he's talking about. And the test of whether or not somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit isn't somebody walking around doing incredible things like that. It's, do you have the right Jesus? Do you have the right gospel? It's God's word that is the test. And people will not do that at the end of the age. In verse 10, we see there's a wicked deception aimed at those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. They refuse to love Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, and to rest in Christ and his perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross where he bore the wrath of God for our sin and his bodily resurrection. They refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, and they're going to trust in themselves ultimately. And so God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. In other words, this is a, a judgment of God. Their unbelief is settled permanently. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. They refused to bow the knee to Christ. We constantly have choices before us. Who are you going to follow? Who am I going to follow? Christ and his word or the word of Antichrist, that which is opposed to Christ and his word, which is found in the world and in here. In here. We must stand firm in the faith, in the face of satanic opposition. Verse 13 is a powerful word of assurance that speaks to the sovereignty of God and salvation. Notice, beloved of the Lord, why are you beloved in the Lord? Because he chose you as first fruits. That is the first portion of something. They were among the first Gentiles. You can say the first generation of believers in Christ then. Other manuscripts say chosen from the beginning. Both things are certainly true. From the foundation of the world, God chose a vast multitude of hell-deserving sinners in Christ. For these Thessalonians, they were going to be the first ones in their region who would believe in Christ because they were chosen by God unto salvation to be saved through, he says, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That is, being set apart unto holiness. Paul says that we, he chose us in Christ that we might be holy and without blame in him, being predestined in love set apart by the Holy Spirit, and then set apart now, we would be the ones, those who are set apart in Christ would be the ones that the Holy Spirit then would apply that perfect work of Christ that he accomplished in his perfect life and his sacrificial death. He would apply that work perfectly to all those who were chosen in Christ at the moment of his choosing. And then when he does, 
He raises them from spiritual death to spiritual life. He gives them the gifts of saving faith and repentance. And they, who formerly were unable to turn to Christ, turn to Christ. They cry out to Christ, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, save me. And then the text says, he does all that so that they may obtain the glory of Christ. That is, that they might be brought into union with the resurrected and glorified Christ and be conformed to his image that we die more and more to sin and live unto righteousness. Since that's true of them and us, verse 15, they must stand firm in the traditions taught not by the church, but by Paul, by us, by the apostles. That tradition is the word of God breathed out through them that you have right here in your Bible. Well, not just your Bible. We have to stand firm in the word, not the traditions of men, not the word of the world, not the word of my own sinful heart, but the word of Christ in the gospel. Here is comfort for our souls. Here is where we are established in every good work, in every word, the word of the gospel that we are called to proclaim, the gospel not of one who came to be served, to, to, to serve, but to be, to be served, but to serve and gave his life on the cross as a ransom for many to deliver them from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his light. And we know that he, when he returns, he will destroy the works of the devil by the breath of his mouth, emphasizing how easy it will be. Yeah, that's how easy it is. <laughs> As I bring this to a close, it's not a question of if you're following Christ or if you're following Antichrist. We're all following one or the other. The word of Antichrist is all around us, but the true Christ came to set us free through his death on the cross for our sins. And so, if you never have, turn today to the true Christ who came to set you free. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And for those that have, let us rejoice in this great salvation that we have, keeping our eyes fixed, listen, not on Antichrist. Not playing pin the tail on Antichrist, but keeping our eyes fixed on the true Christ, the one who humbled himself and came to earth and lived a perfect life and laid down his life on the cross for sinners like you and like me and rose triumphantly from the grave, is ascended into heaven, is spreading his kingdom throughout the world and one day will come back in power and in glory and raise us up with him and establish and consummate his kingdom on earth forever, where there's no more suffering, no more pain, and it's that day that we yearn for, that day that we can't wait to happen. Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus, and, and as we're waiting for you, we're going to stand firm on your word, Lord. Enable us and empower us now to go forth in the power of your spirit to bring that word into the world so that you could be about the business of setting people free from the shackles of sin and death and make them your people forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your deliverance in setting us free. 
Help us, Lord, to take hold of this word, to keep our eyes fixed on the Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.